0: Hi. Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. If you're with me today, uh, you're here to learn about evaluating exposure in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. Sitting to my left, your right, is our senior associate in our New Jersey workers' comp practice, Karen Vincent. I'm very happy to be here with you today.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: Karen just got engaged just before our lovely Thanksgiving Thanksgiving weekend, so if you want to just type in a congratulations to her. They're popping up over here on my screen, so feel free to do that. (laughs) Um, All right, let's begin. Uh, This is our New Jersey webinar series. Today's topic is evaluating exposure. Uh, New Jersey webinars are always the fourth Monday of the month, which is today. Uh, New York webinar series is the third Monday of the month. Please join us for that if you have New York workers' compensation exposure. If you miss one of these webinars, no worries, because uh, we have archived copies of every webinar, the audio and the video, as well as closed captioning on our website so you can watch it at your leisure. I know a lot of people enjoy watching these on a Friday night. They invite people over to their house, popcorn, beer, enjoy these things. Uh, hour. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, uh, this is totally live. Uh, this is as scripted as it's going to get, please feel free to ask us questions. I can see on this console here your questions popping up. Oh, I see Maureen's already said congratulations to you. So all right, congrats are coming in. Uh, I can see your questions as they pop up. I'm hoping for a lot of questions today uh, because our conversation today is really going to be more uh, about how to work with your attorneys and get the best outcomes from your attorneys. Uh, versus the nitty-gritty of trying to price these cases, right? I mean at the end of the day Our goal is that we're giving you some tools to put into your toolbox so you work with your attorneys as partners uh, Make sure that your attorneys are being communicated with you and, and I think that's one of our big takeaways from today is how what you should expect from your attorneys who are handling your New Jersey workers cop cases uh, What kind of information they should be giving you and exactly when so I think it's important for us to think about when you should know the exposure in your case uh, and then try to figure out how that's being sort of estimated when they're when your attorney is working with you and giving you that information. Fair, fair. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the times when we're guaranteeing you, or you should be getting a lot of information about the potential exposure in your Jersey workers' comp case.
1: So today we're going to cover the when. So first we'll do the intake. That's when we do the legal action plan and the budget. Then we have before and after permanency examinations. Uh, We have when we get a settlement demand from petitioner's counsel, we have conferences with the judge, and also a pretrial memorandum.
0: Right, and if you work with us, you know that we send out a legal action plan and budget, typically within seven days of referral of a new matter. In that action plan, uh, we're trying to give an estimate of the exposure in a case. It's sometimes hard to, because we don't have the complete medicals, maybe the claimant or the petitioner is still treating. Um, we certainly usually don't have IMEs when a case is first referred to us for litigation and handling, and obviously it hasn't been conferenced with the judge. Hopefully it hasn't been conference with the judge already without <laughs> us. Um, so for all those reasons, that action plan and budget, we like to sort of give our best guess as to what's going to happen in the case, but really it's the best guess at that point if the medicals aren't complete. But through the other steps of the process, they're really happening during that litigated process. Um, so let's walk through that. This is a scary chart. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is really uh, the uh, litigation path of a typical workers' compensation case in New Jersey. It begins with maximum medical improvement being reached, both sides getting exams, um, some type of discussions hopefully before the case is conferenced with a workers' compensation judge, and then what happens when we can't reach an agreement. So we're going to go through all these basic steps and talk to you about uh, sort of information you should be getting from your attorneys as to pricing, and if the case is uh, you know uh, uh, being litigated, certainly there's a lot of opportunity in there to get really good pricing or exposure information from your counsel. So uh, let's start with the very beginning. Okay, so first, when you said
1: we do the legal action plan and budget, a lot of those times we don't have the medicals or we have very sparse medicals, and like you said, the petitioner is still treating. So a lot of those times when we we give an initial value, we give a broader range just based upon our experience, what we see based on an initial diagnosis. So once the petitioner reaches MMI, uh, the petitioner's medical condition is fixed and arrested. So at that point, we, we should have all the medical records, diagnostic studies, operative reports if there are any, and we're ready to schedule a permanency exam. Prior to scheduling a permanency exam, we can then take the initial value of the case that we provided, and narrow that down based upon the actual medical reports and treatment that the petitioner submitted to.
0: Yeah, I love that you just said in the original action plan and budget will give you sort of a range because lawyers are weasels and we like weasel words and being vague so that we don't get <laughs> hung with our own words. So, yeah, it's very typical that in a case that comes in and the medical is incomplete, we're going to say, well, this could go for somewhere between 15 and 22.5% of permanent partial total. And then as the case moves along, we'll sort of winnow that down closer uh, to narrow it down and make it more accurate. Um, and I absolutely agree that at the time the uh, petitioners reached maximum medical improvement, Like, we should have a really good idea of exactly what that case is worth. And, you know, sending them to the IME doctor, frankly, I think is almost a formality. We pretty much know what the value of that case should be. Um, So upon uh, maximum medical improvement being found, I think you should expect absolutely for your defense counsel to be giving you a really careful uh, estimate of their overall exposure and settlement range in the case uh, and tell you what that case is worth.
1: And what's important with that, too, is that as medical treatment goes on, uh, anytime we get medical records, we try to update as we go. And mm-hmm. that's specifically because we may have had a case that started as a sprint and straight, but then developed after diagnostic studies into surgery. So we find it's important that, especially if the range is changing, that we let you know as soon as possible so that we can we can keep everybody up to date as to what we think the value is as it's progressing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That way there's no surprises at the end of the case that all of a sudden the value is completely different than what we initially uh, thought it to be. So after MMI, again, we then take a look at that value and say whether it's still the same range, we we tend to narrow it down at that
0: point. Yep. Um, And of course, both sides hopefully are getting exams very quickly. Um, and then we're able to use those uh, ranges given by the physicians to even further refine that estimate of exposure. Um, some of our clients have asked us to actually schedule the petitioner's exams for them. because one of the most frustrating things is we get our exams relatively quickly, you know, the claimants reached MMI, uh, we assemble that medical index, we get it to the IME doctor. It's a relatively quick turnaround, but we see our adversaries really dragging their feet on that. and Some part of that is their fault, uh, they're just lazy. And some part of that is the fault that there's just not that many IME physicians on behalf of petitioners to perform those medical evaluations. So, you know, you always see the petitioners going to Saul Meyers Medical Associates and some of these other, you know, clearly mills staffed by doctors of questionable repute. And, you know, our clients will say, like, why do they always go to these same? And I'm like, well, not a lot of doctors want to do IMEs. And the reason for that, um, or to do petitioner's IMEs, I should say, is because they're limited to how much they can be paid for an IME report. right? And if they come to court to testify, they have limited fees as well, which is different than our IME, the defense IME doctors, who can charge whatever they want and can set their own rates and fees for what they're going to be paid to be compensated to come to Workers' Comp Court. So for those reasons, uh, we have a lot of uh, much easier time um, getting our IMEs done. And it's one of those uh, contentions points with our clients where they say, come on, uh, why are they taking four months to get their IMEs from Saul Myers? I think it's because they're very backed up. They just don't have enough positions there to do that type of demand. Um, but it is possible. You can reach out to your defense counsel. And you know we have reached out across the aisle to our adversaries and said hello. I see you're having a little trouble getting this uh, scheduled, maybe it's a solo practitioner who doesn't have a wonderful paralegal like we may have here, and we'll say we'll, we'll have our paralegal schedule everything, put together the medicals for you, you know, you can approve the cover letter that will go to the doctor if you want to do one, I don't know if they even do them all the time, um, and then get them out there for them. So that's a thought about how you can expedite some of that. We've also been suggesting doctors outside of
1: Saul Meyers because I think yeah. what I understand Saul Myers, you have to issue a request with the medical records, then they get back to you with the date, then it's two, three months before the report comes back in. So we've been kind of suggesting to the other attorney, hey, you have all these, how about this doctor or this other doctor to mm-hmm. hopefully get them to schedule it with a doctor who's quicker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, that's why it's also good, like you said before, that going into these exams, we pretty much could predict uh, within a few Uh, numbers,
0: what (laughs) what the exam report's going to say. Yeah, I mean, I'm giggling because, I mean, at the end of the day, I really don't care what Dr. Mayo uh, from Sal Myers thinks of someone or Dr. Wong. I know that these doctors have no credibility. I have no respect for them. As practitioners, I'm not impressed with their reports, and I question their credentials. And for all those reasons, I personally don't put any weight. On what they say, I've, I've cross-examined both of them many times. I've not been impressed, and for those reasons, I think that the petitioners' IME reports are really just their stakeholders. You know, they're just planting a flag at one end of the field, and we have our report, which is also maybe not entirely defensible. And you know, the the goal is to go get the case to the right value, um, and both sides are doing that. I mean, the goal here is really to be get the negotiations going. Most of our adversaries will not even make a settlement demand. If they don't have their own IME report, right? I mean, they, they don't like to. They feel like that's not being defensive lawyers from the malpractice point on their own behalf, um, and so you know, at oftentimes this that's the hurdle we have to go through just to get that settlement demand. Um, and then settlement demands in and of themselves, we don't put a ton of credence in them. I mean, this is a situation where we have to know our adversary, right? right? What kind of demands they're going to get, um, you know, how positional they're going to be with their demands. Uh, and our goal as attorneys is then to keep transmitting to you exactly what the demands are, what our counter offers are, and their roles to make demands. Our roles to make counter offers, to make recommendations about counter offers, and get that process going. Our goal it really should be to try to resolve 85 to 90 percent of cases before they get before a workers' compensation law judge. I mean that is really uh, where we should be settling them. that both sides have exams. We should exchange them and do it out of court. Unfortunately many of our adversary practitioners don't want to settle cases outside of the workers' comp judges' chambers, and there may be very valid reasons for that, right? I mean, I've had uh, workers' comp judges say, well, I, ne- I get it that you guys got a negotiated settlement here, but I still want to see the reports and weigh in, right? right? And that's you know that's just called being respectful to the judges' uh, uh, practice in chambers, and many of them do want to see the reports. Uh, they do want to weigh in and tell the parties if they think it's fair. They think that that's their role uh, in approving a settlement, uh, sort of like a second attorney for the petitioner, to make sure it's fair.
1: And it really does differ between each judge, which is why it's good with our practice because we have a we have a regular court list in every uh, workers' comp court in the state of New Jersey, and we have a ton of years of experience. So most of the time, we know who petitioner's attorney is, what kind of demand they're going to give. How, how much they negotiate, whether they'll even try a case or try to try to avoid it at all costs. And on top of it, we know our judges. We know in advance, this is a judge that if we do a section 20, it has to be conference first, or this is a judge who will not do it, or this is a judge who's a little more liberal. So because of having all that information in advance, we're able to prepare our clients
0: a little better Uh, Coming into the negotiation phase. Yep. All right, so now we've negotiated back and forth Maybe we haven't been able to reach a resolution. What happens next?
1: That's when we uh, pre try a case. Well first actually I jumped the gun. We we conference the case with the judge So the judge will usually take a look at the medical records Uh, Pretty much both sides will give a little history of their version of what happened We'll give our our take on why we don't think it's as bad as it is. Petitioner's attorney will go the opposite. But at the end of the day, the judge will look at the permanency reports, give a little credence more to the final diagnosis. Um, They'll look at the diagnostic studies. That's a big one. Uh, They're really looking at the objective tests um, more and more.
0: They're trying to.
1: So one of the problems or one of the issues we do come about is, we have permanency reports where our doctor may say, Well, I looked at the diagnostic report and I really don't agree with it, so I find less. Um, The judges mostly will just take what the diagnostic report reads and give that a lot more credibility. So going into that, we we have to look at what the actual diagnosis is and what the real treatment is. And so each one is taken by a case-by-case basis. And at the end of that, some judges will ask what the demand was and what the offer was. Uh, usually when they do that, we can predict they're going to pick a number straight in the mm-hmm. middle. Mm-hmm. If we say 20 and they say 25, we know the judge is going to say 22 yep. and a half. Yep. But in other instances, we're saying 10 and they're saying 65. And, you know, sometimes the judge has a hard time picking a number in between. If they come back with something agreeable that everybody uh, thinks is a fair resolution, then we're able to go back and, and put it through as a settlement.
0: Yeah, I no. Some of our clients, particularly those who um, are national so that New Jersey's not their only jurisdiction that they're defending employee claims in, will say that New Jersey has this sneaky closed doors system. And the truth is, the time when your attorney needs to be most persuasive in this system is in chambers when the judge says, oh, what's the case? How come you guys can't agree, right? And that's the opportunity for you to be that persuasive. You said both sides sort of give their version of facts of the case. Right, our adversaries will typically come into court and say, "This is the nicest little old lady, you know. She was in great health, ran marathons, and then she had this terrible workplace loss. This sprained her ankle, and you know they'll give their sort of color to it. And then it's our job, really, as defense attorneys in chambers, uh, first to be credible, right? So the judge knows us by reputation. You've been at this 18 years. 18 years. Okay, 18 years. So uh, I've been at this for almost the same amount of time. And you know, after a while, the judge sort of knows. Okay, this is someone. who when they tell me the facts of the case, I don't need to check it. You know they'll, they'll sort of know your reputation, how credible you are. And we want to talk about, on the defense side, uh, the objective medicals that you just referenced, right? I want to say, well, Judge, there were MRIs, there were CAT scans, they showed nothing, right? There was no uh, operation or, or they did do a diagnostic arthroscopy and it didn't show much here. There was no, no no full tear, that kind of thing. And make our point so that the judge has some objective, credible medical stuff to hang their hat on. You know, that's what we want to focus on. Generally speaking, the parties are not arguing over which IME doctor is going to be the most credible um, because we all know these IME doctors. We've examined them under oath many, many times, so no one's going to be surprised by that, but this is really the opportunity for your attorney to be uh, persuasive. But we don't always agree, right? So we'll go into the hearing or into the the pretrial conference. By the way, pretty much everything in New Jersey is listed for a pretrial conference, which means you're sitting in a room with a judge discussing your case. If you can agree, the great thing about New Jersey is, uh, the parties can get out a pen and paper, write out a settlement, and the judge can put it through right then and there if the petitioner is present in the courthouse. So that's great. Uh, if they don't agree, uh, there's a next step, which is the judge has to pre-try the case, uh, and that means a formal mem- pre-trial memorandum has to be executed. And this is both parties really listing everything that they would present if the case was listed for trial, all witnesses, etc. We take a very careful approach to the pre-trial memorandum, but... The reason this is important for today is the judge, for a pretrial memorandum to be completed, the judge has to write down their recommendation of it. Yes. Right? And oftentimes, I want my clients to be skeptical of what attorneys are telling them coming out of a conference with the judge. right? When we're going to a conference with a workers' compensation judge, the judge chiefly wants to avoid a trial. They want to avoid being there in the afternoons. right? The judge wants to cut out early, hit the golf course, have a nice day, they don't want to be sitting in their uh, courtroom all afternoon trying cases, um, having to listen to testimony, having to make rulings on testimony, and then having to write decisions because you know they don't want to be overturned, they don't want to be reversed, all those things. So really, the judges are trying to push the parties towards a settlement. And Oftentimes, they're really very reasonable. They really want the case to resolve for what would probably be an accepted or or the correct number. But sometimes they'll lean on one party or another really hard just to try to get that settlement to happen. And sometimes we have to push back and say like, no, this is not a case to settle. I mean, the, the instance that you just discussed where you know we might ha- think it's worth 10 percent of permanent partial total right uh, you know 60 weeks of compensation and our adversary thinks it's worth 360 weeks of compensation and the difference there could be200,000 dollars versus ten thousand dollars and really big differences in exposure um, and where we can agree and the judge and maybe weighs it in and is not helpful, then the pretrial memorandum should be executed and you should push on your attorney say I want to see what the judge wrote down on the pretrial rec- uh, recommendation, what the judge thinks the case should resolve for because let me tell you a little secret. It's going to resolve for something really close to that, or the judge is going to hurt the party who would not agree at trial. So if the judge writes down there on that recommendation, it should go for 10% of permanent partial total, and if the petitioner who says, no, I think it's worth 60, the little secret is you're going to go to trial, you could try the whole case. I can tell you, the judge is going to make, you make themselves look good by coming out at 10% or lower. The same thing happens to us as respondents on the defense side, right? The judges say, no, guys, this is a 60. You really should pay attention to this case. This is a heavy case. And we go and say, no, 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 judge is worth 5%. We better have something amazing in our back pocket, like great video surveillance of this person competing in the Olympics, or the judge is going to teach us a lesson and maybe even come up higher than that recommendation that they made on that pretrial memorandum. So it's something to think about that it's really not a two-party negotiation. Once the judge gets involved, now there's a three-party negotiation and the judge has skin in the game. And the skin in the game in the beginning is just avoiding trial, and the skin in the game after we've executed the pretrial memorandum is proving a point and showing to us that we should have listened to them before we got to this point.
1: Okay? And that's what I think is really important that a lot of people forget is that the the judge that does the conference is the is the same judge that drives the case. Huge which point. Which is why we make it a point that if we are going to conference the case with the judge, we know the file inside and out because when petitioner's attorney gives their, their recitation of the medical facts as they would present it, there's going to be big gaping holes, and it's our job to fill in those holes, mm-hmm. and it's our job to uh, shift some of what they think is a big injury and explain why it's not because that initial recommendation from the judge is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So in instances where we haven't even tried to reach a settlement with petitioners attorney, we don't want to have that conference take place with the judge, because we do want to see if we could work something out initially. But that that conference with the judge is a very important conference, because like you said, that gets put on the pretrial memorandum. And a lot of times for us, if it is something reasonable and we come back with that authority, that is the first thing we're telling our client is that if it's petitioner's attorney holding it up. Absent some sort of red herring that appears in court, the judge is really looking at petitioner's attorney thinking why didn't it settle with what I originally said, and now six months later, eight months later, a year later, We're landing right
0: back in the same position. Yeah. I mean, my old boss used to tell me, you always want to be the most reasonable person in the room when it comes to settlement negotiations. You want the judge to think you're being reasonable and trying to meet them halfway and compromise the best you can. And so that pretrial memorandum is a real opportunity for us to to show the judge, hey, we're reasonable. We're doing what you told us that we should be doing and and try to resolve those cases. All right. Uh, Sometimes we can't resolve it uh, even at the pretrial stage, and the case has to be tried. And one thing to remark about in this jurisdiction is that trials are not sequential. Uh, they take place over weeks, months, and years. Right. So first person who testifies is the petitioner. Then any lay witnesses that we have, that would be to dispute the petitioner's version of events. And then the medical witnesses would go. their are uh, experts, then our experts. And this takes months often to get all the testimony in before a workers' compensation judge. There's a lot of opportunity in there to settle the case. And every time somebody testifies, your attorney should be coming back from court and saying, "Here's how this moved the needle on settlement. Here's how this moved the needle on exposure." So I don't think we need to belabor that because there are so many opportunities to come back and sort of discuss settlement or sort of exposure as the trial progresses. And hopefully, your defense attorneys are not trying cases that are not moving the exposure in a positive direction. And that would be really things where we're bringing out something that was extra. Uh, uh medical. in other words, there's some great video of this person. We know that they're working full time full duty with no restrictions for somebody else, making more money doing the same kind of job. something really persuasive out there that we can bring into the trial. there
1: Absolutely usually after especially after the petitioner testifies and there's cross-examination actually it's a little tangent I would point out a lot of the these trials are scheduled in the afternoon because in the morning the judges have their regular list. So we've even had instances where a trial starts at 1.30 and cross-examination is three weeks later. Right. So that's another difficulty is just the time put into these trials. But after a direct and cross-examination, a lot of times the judges will take us back into a conference again. And one of the biggest questions the judge will always say is, where are you going with this? And it's whether he's asking us or petitioner's attorney. Right. And usually when they say that, that is a big indication
0: that... Stop asking questions. Stop. <laughs> Stop. You got, yes. You got absolutely. your point in. Yep, absolutely. All right, so we're gonna, this conversation today is not about trial. We do cover trial and some of those topics in other webinars and uh, webinars that are coming up. So let's talk a little bit about how, because it's, it's important to know when your counsel should be telling you exactly the value of your case, but how they should. Um, let's breeze through this part, because this is relatively straightforward. Um, A lot of body parts and injuries are extremely easy, hands, finger, feet, toes. Uh, The scheduled body parts, they're on a big, giant chart. If you look at my book, uh, the end of the book has sort of a cheat sheet, every body part, what it's worth in terms of number of weeks, which are just simply multiplied by their uh, total uh, temporary disability rates, so that's very simple. Uh, Some people are more familiar with this chart, which is the New Jersey Manufacturers Insurance Company's chart that they publish every year, but nobody uses this anymore, really. Every practitioner, including all the law judges, are now using something called Oscar Calc, Oscar Calculator, which calculates all the permanent partial disabilities, all the scheduled loss of uses. It's really great. Uh, We think it's the easiest way to make calculations. And by the way, because the judges are using the Oscar Calculator, you better use it, because if you come into court with an order and your numbers are rounded up or down and they don't exactly match Oscar, the judge is gonna make you redo the order anyway. So, my And when we write
1: it. it up, we physically run the Oscar calculation and we copy and paste it into the update so we can actually see how it was calculated and then we have that confirming so that when we do get the settlement order to review, we know that it matches up down to the penny.
0: Right, should match perfectly, all right. Uh, but this doesn't really talk about how the cases are actually valued, right? Because we're always going to have two different reports. Those reports are not going to be agreeing. I've never seen a petitioner's report that says zero. In fact, I mean, the joke is if you ever get a zero, or if you ever get a twenty from Dr. Horowitz, right, or Dr. Mayo, or Dr. Wong, that's a zero. Right? twenty. I mean, if you just ran an Olympic marathon and won it with a gold medal, they'd still find that you have a 20% permanent partial disability. So that's, that's where their floor begins. That's a zero for a petitioner, if you ask me. Uh, our doctors will go all the way down to zero. I don't really see Mar doctors' reports going up above 17 and a half. 20 is like, you're probably dead. Right. I mean, those are really like you're in a wheelchair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> These are really high degrees of, of permanent residual disability, yeah. and yeah, you're holding your own body parts. Hey, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> nice, <laughs> Mitch, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. So those are that. There's always going to be discrepancy in the reports, and you know we don't put a ton of weight on that when we're um, coming up with exposures and cases. So we we'll keep getting back to the question, like, what exactly is the exposure? And the answer is in this jurisdiction. I think it really does come down a lot to experience and rule of thumb. Right. Yes. I mean. Over time, we know the normal range for the injuries, um, and part of that does is uh, uh, varies by venue, All right? I mean, you practice in both the north of the state, so you have a Newark list, yes. and you've got lists down Atlantic City and Camden. Uh, tell everybody which ones are worth more. Where the same injury would be worth more.
1: Oh, well, Atlantic City by far is, yeah. is going to be the highest uh, value. It's a very, it's very much construed into the petitioner's benefit. So uh, a case that's worth 20 in Jersey City is easily 25, 27 and a half down in Atlantic City.
0: Right, and I think we tell clients, I tell clients, hey, a case is worth probably 10% more in the south than it is in the north, just in general, particularly Absolutely. in Atlantic City. You said that you tell clients usually 15% more down there, right? I mean, that's, that's the normal range. But it's important to consider that um, there is not a ton of uniformity or a lot of uniformity. Two exposures throughout the state. It really does vary by, stu- by judge, courtroom, adversary. Certain judges are more amenable to certain of the claimant's attorneys. Remember, we have as your defense counsel a dedicated day in every single one of the 15 courthouses in New, in New Jersey across the state. But it's only one day in the cycle, which is three weeks long our adversaries are before these judges every single day, right? The judges see the exact same petitioners, attorneys every day. Uh, I'm sure that they're uh, uh, very amenable to them because they know a lot. They, they're around them all the time, right. and, and generally speaking, by the way, quite affable and amiable people. So for all those reasons, you know, we've got to overcome that hurdle where in certain jurisdictions the, the judge and the bar that appears before the judge We've got a really great working understanding of each other, and for those reasons, uh, there can be some variation from north to south. Now, I generally find that cases are worth a little bit more in South Jersey, and we define South Jersey as everything below the Raritan River. So there's 15 hearing points in New Jersey. There's eight of them north of the Raritan River, which is basically New Brunswick, uh, which is basically the middle of the state, and there's seven hearing points south of the uh, Raritan River. Generally speaking, they're worth a little bit more now than seven. And We go to all those hearing points, and we tell you very early on in the case, hey, here's the venue, here's the judge, here's what the case is worth, and believe me, we're taking into consideration those factors, as well as who the adversary is.
1: Which is even every now and then we'll get an adjuster call just to get a ballpark figure on a case that either hasn't been formal, no formal claim petition has been filed, or a, we're not currently handling, and usually are you know, right in the beginning it's what court? Do you know if there's a judge assigned, who's petitioner's attorney? Because those factors are just equally as important as what the actual injury is. Mm -hmm. So we we take all of that into consideration.
0: Yeah, and just a final remark about exposure in New Jersey and what things are worth. Uh, Please understand that the judges in this state will actually look at the underlying medicals, and we talked about that earlier. They're going to look at the objective medicals. They're going to look at the MRIs. They particularly like to look at operative reports, which is good for us. And and that's positive, and the judges do take an interest in that, Uh, versus, I mean, I practice in New York. The judges don't care about the treating medicals. They just want to see what are the IME, what is the last treating doctors note? here's the value of the case. And they really are not diving that deep into it, but in New Jersey there are. Um, There are some other factors which will affect your exposure in New Jersey, which are the topic of future webinars, and those are things like credits that you would be due. Uh, In New Jersey, you get a dollar-for-dollar credit in today's dollars for pre-existing injuries. That's called an Abdullah credit, which is very valuable. Uh, In New Jersey, you get a dollar-for-dollar credit for any voluntary compensation paid before uh, the case goes before a worker's compensation judge or within six months of the petitioner reaching maximum medical improvement, which is a great way to reduce exposure and value uh, for things like having to pay for things like attorney's fees on hands, finger, feet, and toes cases particularly where you think you might know the exposure very carefully or very well. Uh, In New Jersey, you do get reimbursement from the value of any third-party settlement obtained by the petitioner, and the only reduction that the petitioner can uh, keep for themselves is their attorney's fees in the third-party case to obtain that settlement, uh, plus $750, which is not a ton, so there's a lot of reimbursement right in New New Jersey. We caution clients that um, different body parts can stack together. So an injury to a hand, to a knee, and a low back will all be stacked together and can increase your overall exposure. That's called Poswiatowski stacking. And finally, New Jersey still has a second injury fund, which is why investigation into any prior medicals is very useful in the state. Even non-work-related injuries or disabilities or illnesses or conditions, uh, you can get a credit for those. So that's very valuable and very important to look into. All right. With all that being said, let's go over here to questions. I'm very excited to see uh, if we have any good questions today. Uh, give me a second to tee these up. Uh, okay. All right. Stephen P. says, congratulations. Karen. Thank
1: you.
0: Maureen says, congratulations. Karen M. says, congratulations. All right. I'm scrolling through here, people. I'm looking for actual questions, not just Congratulations. Let's see what we got here. Anything besides a congratulations? Mm. Okay, how about more congratulations? That's fine, too. Um, uh, Okay, hold on. Linda says, congratulations. Just all congratulations. Great, you know what? Email her later. Uh, (laughs) All right, so that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Um, Next month, we will be talking about reimbursement and subrogation in New Jersey. There is a new appellate decision that just came out on September, uh, sorry, November sixth of this year, uh, called Pino versus Polanco, which I'm certain we're going to be talking about because it's going to affect our practice on subrogation in New Jersey. Please join us for that. Thanks, everybody.